Welcome to the Charleston School of Law podcast. My name is John Struble. I'm the Marketing and Communication Director here at the Charleston School of Law. A couple quick show notes and housekeeping notes before we get started. We invite you to stay connected on social media at Charleston underscore law. If you're interested in learning more about our programs, you could visit us on the web at charlestonlaw.edu. Welcome to part one of our new podcast series on wellness and the law. One of these strategic initiatives that Charleston School of Law invested in this academic year is wellness. We have really raised the bar on the issue of physical and mental wellness through campus resources and our programs. For example, our veteran support group is up and running. Our Timely Care Wellness app allows students to get connected within a couple taps. Our partnership with the South Carolina Bar to implement Lawyers Helping Lawyers, that is a program that helps uh, legal professionals and law students who are experiencing challenges with substance abuse, uh, mental health issues, stress-related issues that affect both their personal and professional lives. And last year, in the 2021-22 academic year, Charleston Law Review hosted an annual symposium in partnership with Furman University and the Riley Institute, it was all about wellness. It's our Law and Society annual symposium. So we have done a lot of work around the issue of wellness over the past couple years and laying the foundation. One of the statistics that really drove us to get started in this area, uh, you may have seen this if you're in the legal industry, the American Bar Association, the ABA, recently published a survey of 3,300 law students at 15 schools, 37% of those law students responded that they suffer from anxiety. 25% are in the at-risk category for alcoholism, and 17% suffer from depression, which brings us right to the doorstep of today's podcast. We are joined by Charleston Law students, Jonathan Raley and Gabriel Mangold, a disclaimer before we get started, guys, thank you so much for your transparency, your bravery, and your willingness to be open about your struggles, how you meant those challenges, and what you did to create a better you. It's always such a pleasure for me to just talk about addiction and recovery and healing, because that's one of the ways that that happened for me, as I sat around and I heard other people talking about it, and eventually I heard a message, you know, and it was so important for me to hear that early on yeah. and, you know and, and it, it's the same is true today like I consistently stuck in my own mind you know I, I'll convince myself that I'm all alone and I have to do it by myself right and, you know when I get outside of that that's when things begin to change I get a different perspective on life and uh, and things become pretty amazing we're going to talk about both of your backstories Gabe what year are you and where did you grow up I'm a 2L right now okay and I grew up all over kind of, but mostly in Southern California and Los Angeles and Culver City. Okay. Jonathan, you come from across the country as well, right? Uh, yeah, that's correct. Um, and I'd like to first echo what Gabe had said. Thank you so much for mm-hmm. allowing us to have uh, this conversation today. You know, I think that it's a very unique opportunity to hopefully open the door to more conversation. So y- You're a 2L as well, right? Th- that's correct. I'm a 2L. I was born and raised in Iowa City, Iowa. Uh, I went to 
to undergrad at a small division three school, 30 minutes north from where I grew up called Coe College. Uh, it was also my dad's alma mater. Thoroughly enjoyed my time in the Midwest, but happier to be here in the warmer weather. Define for me what alcoholism is. I could not define it for a long time. I had a lot of preconceptions of it. I thought that an alcoholic was somebody that had lost everything. You know, the guy underneath the bridge wearing the trench coat with the, you know, the beard and he smelled bad and he had a brown paper bag and that's what an alcoholic looked like. And he'd lost his, you know, his, all his money and his family and all that sort of thing. That separated me from actually hearing what it really is. And uh, when I got into recovery, they made it pretty basic. And this hit me between the eyes. There is a dilemma, and it's not just alcoholism. It's the addict's dilemma. It's mm. any addictive behavior that I might have. What it is is that when I start the behavior, whether it's ingesting alcohol or drugs or eating a certain type of food or whatever sure. that happens to be, there's this phenomenon of craving that occurs that makes me want to keep drinking. I take a drink, and I really want another drink, and then I want another drink, and then I want another drink. And that might not happen every time I drink, but it happens a pretty good majority of the time. And I'll drink pretty hard. The second part of that, as life begins to get a little bit difficult, because if you drink like that mm. consistently, you might run into consequences. You know, you might get DUIs, you might get into trouble with school, you might uh, have problems with family or maybe romantic relationships or, or whatever. There's a myriad of things. And uh, so most people, when they have a problem, they you know wake up and they're in jail or maybe they're just on their front lawn or they've embarrassed themselves badly in front of coworkers. They say, hey, I should quit drinking like that. Right, and here's where the second element comes in is that regardless of how severe those consequences got for me in my life, eventually my mind told me that it would be a really good idea to take a drink again and thereby begins that phenomenon of craving that happened in the first place mm -hmm. where my body just reacts and I want to drink more. And that goes on and on and on. It becomes a vicious cycle. So I'll drink because it's fun and I have a good time and then I'll keep drinking. And then bad things start to happen in my life and I say, whoa, I better take a look at this. And then I say, okay, well, I'm quitting this time. And maybe a week, maybe a couple of months, but eventually the mind goes, hey, you should do that again. And it keeps happening over and over again. And the key for me in my recovery is I found a way to short circuit that. That's what the solution is. Okay. And the solution being is that I need to live my life on spiritual principles. What was it that triggered you to start that behavior? You know? Well, I think that it's always been kind of like that. It was like a slow hindsight, you know, is always 2020. I can look back and I can see all the errors at the time though. It was just like, I was just partying like everybody else parties. Yeah. Started in high school. We'd have beers on the weekends, you know, and you didn't do other stuff. And then college got a little bit more excessive when people start to experiment and it's wild and there's parties. Alcohol made me feel like I fit in, um, made me comfortable around other people. And I, I hear it all the time on campus. Like, hey, if you're going to go to a networking event, you know, and other attorneys and you're nervous, have a couple of drinks. You'll be all right. And that's fine if you're not alcoholic. <laughs> you know, yeah. you, can, you can have a couple drinks and go home. I hear there's people when they have a couple of drinks, they get a little tired, they have a little fun, and then they go to bed. I have a couple of drinks, and it may be at a family dinner or something, and then I'm thinking about what I'm going to do afterwards, how I'm going to go out, and how I'm going to party all night. John, first define alcoholism. A mental obsession and a 
physical allergy. In my experience, as soon as my drinking got to a certain point, I know that there's science to back up this statement, but my brain turned into a, a pickle, for lack of a better word, to uh -huh. where indefinitely, you know, for the rest of my life, when I drink, I'm always going to want to drink in excess. And when do I want to drink? I want to drink all the time. If I'm sad, right? If I'm anxious, if I'm depressed, all those emotions that you had, you had read off some statistics about at the beginning, yeah. my natural default is to drink to numb those emotions. And if I'm happy, if I'm excited, if I'm proud of something I've done, my natural instinct is to celebrate, increase the, the dopamine that I'm getting from those. When I drink, I'm, I don't feel tired. You know, my heart rate increases and I get excited mm -mm. and <laughs> I am, for lack of a better word, elevated. I think it's very cool term alcoholic because it's not something that a doctor diagnoses you with. It's mm -hmm. a proclamation that you make about yourself. When did you take your first drink? I'm not even sure. Maybe 16, 17. Okay. You were a teenager. Yeah. How about you, Gabe? I didn't. Well, I mean, I didn't just start drinking alcoholically when I was really young. There were some uh, older guys in the neighborhood, you know, and, and uh, we had uh, gone to this thing and pumped me full of whiskey. Did the alcohol turn to other substances for both of you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So here's the thing about my recovery and what I realized about my alcoholism and my other addictions is that they were just a symptom. So it was like I'd get a handle on one and something else would escalate or I'd find something new that helped me. You know, like if I got into trouble, if I found myself passing out too often, I'd use uppers or if I couldn't drink, I'd substitute that with pills that would allow me to feel similarly. When did you realize you had a problem? Oh, I knew I had a problem for a long time. I, I really felt I was hopeless. Like I would, you know, I remember for many years waking up and like just being like, dude, you're in a lot of trouble. Like you're in a lot of trouble. So I knew I had a problem. The question was, I didn't believe there was a solution or that I wanted that. I couldn't imagine life without getting drunk or high. It sounded totally unappealing to me. John, when we first started talking about having this podcast and doing this series, you had told me that as recently as law school, you were going into classes under the influence. Yeah, I never thought I had a problem. You know, unlike Gabe, I, I thought that I had a very manageable life. And that was the, the big hurdle that I had to overcome. You know, I did not think that I had a problem with alcohol, no matter how many uh, red flags might have been present. If I was showing up to class intoxicated from the night before or having had a mimosa that morning, you know, I didn't view that as an issue at the time. If neither of you thought you had a problem, when did you realize I need to do something about this? There were many times in my life where a wake up call was presented to me and completely ignored. Um, my first minor in possession charge was my freshman year of undergrad. Um, my junior year, I got my first DUI um, and lost the starting spot that I had secured on the football team at Co. Um, consequences, they never deterred me and incentives were never enough to change my behavior. I thought my life was manageable and didn't know that there was another way to live. I was spinning enough plates between my extracurricular endeavors and the course load that I was taking on that no one really questioned my habits because there were results that I were outputting that to the rest of the world looked respectable. Internally, however, I knew that it wasn't sustainable. 
I eventually realized that it wasn't normal, even in the competitive environment that law school is, to abuse Adderall until the early morning hours and drink to go to sleep thereafter in order to, you know, what I thought, you know, was getting an edge over my classmates. I came to Charleston because I wanted to build habits in law school that would lead to a successful career hereafter. And it was after a few conversations with Gabe, Professor Jansen, and other people we'll talk to in part two of this podcast that helped me realize that there was a solution out there and that I didn't have to find it on my own. Well, what do you think it is that people, when they're suffering, whether it's alcohol or substance abuse, what do you think keeps them from getting help? There's no way I can come forward on this because I'm ashamed, or is shame. it all of shame. those? That, yeah, shame, yeah. Shame's the number one killer. Shame is the number one offender. That's the thing that keeps you in the dark, keeps you isolated. My, my, uh, my addiction wants me not to talk to anybody and it wants me to be alone. It wants to isolate me because that's where it thrives. It wants me to be dishonest about my behavior. Really where it thrives is like in this perceived idea of stigma. If I do come out mm. and, say, and say, hey, I need help. And like I said earlier, I think my addiction or the, the alcoholism and the drug addiction is simply just a symptom of this other underlying malady that I have. Mm. And I think that's the root of all addiction is that people feel fear an insecurity coursing through their veins and they don't know how to properly handle it. They're maladjusted to life. And I didn't know that for so long because I didn't want to admit it. So I'd use drugs and alcohol as an ability to function and to feel better. I didn't, I don't, I can't tell you what I did with my emotions when I was drinking. I mean, I could probably name three that I might've had mm -hmm. at the time. You know, there was like depression, then like, you know, euphoria and maybe like, uh, competition I just drive myself yeah. that way right and I and I thought I was constantly on this quest for more I knew that it was something outside myself would fix me I was fixated on the idea that all this external stuff would bring me happiness and if I were happy then I finally could arrive and I could exhale and I wouldn't have to drink anymore and I was going about it that was true if I could exhale, if I could let it go for a minute, I don't have to drink anymore, but I was going about it a completely wrong route. Mm. I was looking outside myself, whether it was money or accolades or success or relationships or whatever it was that I needed to feel better. And alcohol and drugs were just a part of that, right? It was like, I put this in my body because I don't want to be the way I am right now. I can't stand to be in my own skin. It's the insecurity there. Anxiety, yeah. racked, with, racked with fear about the future, feeling shame from the past because I had never actually delved into it and brought it out into the light and shared it with anyone else. I mean, there's people out there right now that are listening to us that might be going to school or in practice that they got something that they're sitting on that they're going to take to their grave. And they might just do that. The thing is, that's the thing that will kill you is the stuff that you think that you're somehow separate than everybody else. So all the stuff that you guys push down and mm -hmm. where did you find the strength and the wherewithal to step forward out of that shame or guilt or whatever mm -hmm. and approach somebody and say, I, I have a problem. <laughs> it, Help me. It, it wasn't courage. Yeah. Was, uh, let me tell you, I mean, I was, I was terrified. I think there's nothing more courageous than someone asking for help for the first time, especially with such a stigma, you know, something that's surrounded by so much stigma, especially in this profession. Sure. Where it's like, you know, you don't want to be known as the town drunk, no. especially if you're an attorney. Right. Um, and for me, it was was that I really had no other option. I was either going to end it or do something else about it. 
And luckily for me, you know, in my story, things kind of worked out the way where I was able to go, much like John, go to a meeting. And it started with hope. It was like I heard people, like you said, John, that said were speaking the same feelings that I was feeling that I could not articulate. The incomprehensible demoralization that one feels after a bender mm. and waking up and being like, why did I do that again? Why am I putting myself in this position? Why am I letting everyone I love down in my life? Why am I doing that? I'm never going to do it again. And then finding myself in a position where I'm doing it again. And they knew exactly how that felt. And these people seem to be living a life that was happy, joyous, and free. Mm. Of that, they seem to be like able, they, they were happy without drinking, number one. So there wasn't like this, oh, I'm going to unpack all the stuff that I've been stuffing down because I had no idea no clue that, that that was even happening. I was in such denial about, you know, who I was, what ran me, which was fear, you know, dishonesty, self-seeking, you know, things of that nature were just driving me, mostly fear. And I wouldn't admit it to anybody. It sounds to me like the further away you get from drinking, then you can start revealing what those root issues are. Absolutely. Once you get a little healthier. A little bit healthier, a little bit further away from the last drink, but but also just the, the fellowship of men in recovery played such an important impact on allowing me to actually talk about my emotions. I mean, as men, you know, we're not, we're told like, you know, you don't cry and you're tough, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, and I'm still working on the crying thing personally. <laughs> <haven't>, <laughs> All right, yeah, one, two, three, go. Yeah, I <laughs> can't remember the last time I was really shedding a tear, but yeah. you know, being able to be open and honest and, and talk about, you know, these feelings that have always been suppressed by the alcohol um, was definitely something that I didn't do alone. You know, being able to go up to somebody else in recovery who was a practicing attorney and say, and ask questions that, you know, I, I couldn't ask somebody else like, hey, like, you know, do you pay your credit card and rent on time? And like, you have a healthy relationship <laughs> with your with your wife right? and like you don't miss, you know, deposition dates or, or, you know, deadlines set by the court. Seeing attorneys in practice, in recovery, who had what I wanted, right, had a manageable life, a meaningful impact that they were able to provide for their clients. And, and being able to go to them and say, hey, you have these things, I kind of want to, you know, I want to be like you one day and have them tell me, all right, well, this is what you need to do. That, that was a, a, a really big moment for me. My, Gabe talked earlier about how he knew there was a solution. Well, I come from, I'm genetically predisposed to the disease of alcoholism and my preconceived notions about Alcoholics Anonymous or a 12-step meeting were a lot of cigarettes and a lot of coffee, you know? <laughs> so wherever there's a great bar scene, there's a great recovery scene and we've got a <laughs> A lot of great bars here in Charleston. Yes, yes we do. Uh, so, so just being able to, uh, you know, see the other side of that coin and, you know, recognize that all those statistics, all those, you know, attorneys who struggle with, yeah. with alcohol, there's a lot of attorneys who have been in recovery and been sober for 15, 20 years that I talk to on mm -hmm. a daily basis. Mm -hmm. I'm able to share things that are going on in my life and the support and the fellowship, it, it's unarticulatable. Mm -hmm. Ineffable. Ineffable. Who in this in this culture was available to you that you could talk to? Yeah, I mean, the school has a great open door policy, but again, like Gabe said, there was a whole lot of shame going on internally. And, you know, I also, again, didn't recognize that I that my life was unmanageable. I thought I had it figured out because 
I was able to earn very respectable grades, even with these very poor decisions that I was making. Maybe there's an error in the, you know, grading office, just like there was an error in the, you know, admissions office and I, you know, shouldn't be sitting here, you know, but I, I didn't, I didn't recognize that, you know, I really had a problem, but I eventually did go and, and speak with a woman named Beth Paget, who will have the privilege of speaking with mm-hmm. sure. in part two of this series. And just kind of explained what was going on. And I reached out to her not because I thought I needed help. I reached out to her because I knew that I had some past transgressions that would come up one day when it came time for the character and fitness panel to mm-hmm. vet me. And I wanted to make sure I was putting my best foot forward. I went and reached out to Beth and started that conversation. And did she begin to peel away some of those layers and say, you know, is there something else here that you know, I need to know? You know, not really. Um, Beth was actually just very, very supportive mm-hmm. in that all that she wanted was the best for me. If I didn't, you know, I did not have a desire to stop drinking at the time and she was not trying to push anything on me. Priority number one was amending the disclosure statements that I had made when I applied to the law school. Um, I was charged and arrested for the second DUI in my entire life after the point in time where I had been accepted into the law school, but before the point in time of the first day of classes. So I- (laughs) You're celebrating. So I- (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you can say that. Um, So I needed to, uh, I needed to properly disclose that information. And Beth was a free resource to help me do that. And she was an incredible resource. I mean, small things like instead of, you know, I sent her this draft of an amendment and I said, I made a mistake. And she's like, no, John, you didn't make a mistake. You made a poor decision, right? Uh, You know, small changes like that are are actually really important when, Mm. you know, the time comes that that statement will be read aloud in front of the character and fitness panel. Um, you know, because you want to make sure you're taking action, yeah. excuse me, taking ownership. Yeah, yeah being actions. accountable for your actions. Yeah. Exactly. So, so Beth was really important and that was kind of what started that conversation with her. Um, from there, she got me in contact with another attorney here in Charleston who was a friend of that program, um, who was also in recovery. And she said, this is your new mentor. And I reached out to him and, uh, you know, we started to get lunch every couple of weeks okay. when I was applying for jobs. He was writing letters of recommendation and such, um, you know, and, and helping me form these these connections. And it was really cool because coming from Iowa, I didn't know anybody out here. I right. had no connections to the area. So lawyers helping lawyers, you know, not only served as the foundation for recovery, but it served as the foundation for me getting plugged in mm-hmm. to, you know, attorneys within the area. And it was the conversations that I had with my mentor through Lawyers Helping Lawyers that kind of helped me realize that, well, I should probably, you know, start having more of these conversations and and, and figure out if now is going to be the time where, you know, I'll stop drinking. Okay. Gabe, you, your journey, actually, you, your alcohol Put it having alcohol in your life or taking a drink ended before you came to law school. So oh correct? yeah, okay. I have uh, I've been sober now fourteen years. Okay, so so you had I'm that. only a two L. So. <laughs> could you have Could you have been in law school when? No, I mean I mean I, <laughs> I might know. I might have been. I just had no desire. Okay. You know, I had I had tailored a I was a professional DJ in nightclubs, and so I had tailored a career around partying. 
like that was like my solution was that I mean John kind of rang a bell with me it's like it's really hard to see your relationship to alcohol when you're in the middle of it it's hard to see it yeah. and, and it's like uh, you know I look back at it and you know when I'd get DUIs I'd stop driving because it wasn't the drinking problem, it was the truck, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, that, that was the issue. If my girlfriend was telling me that I, I'm a jerk when I drink, well, and that, that's her problem, you know, I gotta get rid of She's her. She's out. Yeah, and yeah. so, you know, I found a position where I could kind of drink and, and do whatever and still make a living and a, a pretty decent one and uh, continue that kind of behavior. So it wasn't that alcohol took things away from me, it's that I willingly sacrificed those things. Gotcha. There's yeah. a dynamic around the legal profession mm -hmm. with networking events, with um, us getting together outside the office to talk about business and have a couple mm -hmm. drinks. It's just part of the industry and the way it is. Mm -hmm. What is it like for you to be around alcohol in those settings? Is it something that creates any stress or anxiety for either of you? No, not, not at all. I mean, I think that, um, you know, being in those situations is not any kind of a, a trigger to, to want to drink. Um, I, I also think that I'm, you know, at least personally, I'm just much more selective about, you know, the ways that I'm going about, you know, going to networking events mm -hmm. or, or whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. So if, you know, there's an event that's being offered that's surrounded around alcohol, you know, I might be less inclined to go to it because I might get less from it. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm more interested in the first place in connecting with, you know, attorneys who might be in recovery or, or sober to begin with, um, you know, than I am going and, and meeting somebody while everyone's drinking. And the, yeah. the, the law school puts on events like that all the time that sure. are surrounded around mocktails or, or you know, surrounded around non-alcoholic drinks. So there's, Mocktail. Yeah, Mocktail. <laughs> there's plenty of opportunities. Yeah, there are. Yeah. And even going to the drinking ones, it's yeah. like, it's, you know, it turns out not everyone drank or drinks the way I drank. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. not like I go there and people are forcing me to drink. In fact, no one does that really. And uh, what, what the things that I learned um, is that when I go to an event like that is number one, to have a purpose. How long am I going to stay there? So I time myself because staying there too long, you know, it's like I could give myself half an hour, 45 minutes. I'll try and get the guest list and see who's going to be there and see if there's someone I want to meet. Right. And then do some research on them, you know, do a little stalking and see if, I, <laughs> <laughs> if, we, if we don't have something in common, you know, yeah, someone sure. that has what I want, you know, in their professional career. Right. You know, whether it's a judge or an attorney or whatever. If there's a college student, a law student, a, an attorney, an alum from here who's struggling, they hear this podcast and say, that's me. What he's describing is me. What do you say to them to one, encourage them and two, give them hope? And what's the next step? So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's a lot of different audiences that you just addressed, sure. you know, there. I mean, I, if, if it's a, a law student, um, you know, the open door policy at this school, I, I had the privilege of spending um, the fall and now continuing on into the spring in a role as a research assistant for uh, Professor Jansen. And, <laughs> you know, he is not only um, one of Gabe and I's favorite professors here on, on campus, but an incredibly supportive mm -hmm. and welcoming um, 
you know, friend to my recovery. Mm -hmm. And when I was able to go to him and say, Hey, this is what I have going on. The overwhelming love and support that I felt was, um, it's hard to describe. I mean, yeah. he not only said that he understood, but he was immediately willing to do anything and everything within his power to help make sure that number one, I was able to deal with my problems as they related to alcohol. But secondly, he was able to, you know, help coach guide and, and counsel me how to be successful when it comes to school. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I think that if you're a law student and you have a relationship with a professor, you'd be amazed at how, willing they are to help point you in the right direction. And when it came to Professor Jansen, he's, you know, the one who, um, he's one of the people who told me, oh, you might want to, you know, talk to Gabe too. Mm -hmm. And there's probably a list of about seven or eight names that he, uh, he rattled off, mm -hmm. um, of other men at this law school in recovery who he said had come to him too, and were Amazing. willing to meet yeah. with any student who, uh, you know, might be interested. And I had no idea that that was the case. You know, and another resource would be Beth Padgett, right? If right. you didn't want to go, if you wanted to go to a, a source that was independent from the law school, Beth Padgett's a confidential resource that you can go to. And, and just like I did, you know, say, hey, you know, maybe you don't have a problem or you don't know if you do, you know, but you want to stop drinking. I mean, she's a resource there from amending disclosure statements to helping you, you get connected with attorneys in the area who are in recovery. I think Beth Padgett's a great resource. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, also in, in today's technology world, you know, there's a, a really, really great resource um, in 12-step programs, you know, be that Narcotics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous, um, you know, Debtors Anonymous, whatever the malady may be in your life, you can actually go on your phone, download an app and find a meeting within probably a five minute walk of wherever you are. Amazing. Almost it on is. the hour, every hour, all incredible. throughout Charleston. So, you know, if you don't want to go to a professor and you don't want to go to Beth Padgett, you could always just walk into one of the many 12 step rooms throughout the greater Charleston area mm -hmm. and uh, just have a conversation with someone there or sit quietly in the back and just listen. You know, mm -hmm. you'd be amazed at how much you can take away from those experiences. Gabe, by the time you were here at the law school, you hadn't had a drink in 14 years. So has your role here been more helping other students who do identify that they do have a drinking problem, mentoring and those type of things? Or are you still going to AA meetings? Are you still meeting with, are you meeting with Beth Padgett as well? Or kind of, I, where are you? I participate your... heartily in, uh, in my recovery. Okay. I am, I, I place that for almost anything else. Gotcha. Part of that is a spirit of service. Okay. Which is what brought me to law school. I learned through that service makes me feel the best I've ever felt in my life. Yeah. And so I continue to do that, whether it's with other students or whoever that I can help, you know, whatever capacity I can. Yeah. You know, I continue to do that. And to, and to address your previous question also, mm. if there's someone right now that's listening to this podcast that they're like, hey, I think I have a problem, I want you to know a couple things. Number one, there is definitely a solution to your problem. Mm. There is a solution, and it's probably a lot better than what you think it is. Because mm. when I was sitting there and I was grinding over what was I going to do with my life because I couldn't stop, I imagined this black and white world where I was, you know, cast off to the salt mines where things were going to be boring and dull. And that is quite the opposite in my life. The best years of my life by far have been in recovery 
And I had some pretty wild, awesome years out drinking. Mm. <laughs> and uh, number two, you never have to be alone again. Like you don't have to be alone ever. And you can reach out to me or John personally, or to, John mentioned a ton of wonderful resources. But you know, just asking for help is so huge and it will begin that process that will change your life. So that that's anybody that's listening that has a problem, I want you to know that. Okay. Yeah, and John, you can list Gabe and I's emails and yeah. our cell phone numbers at the bottom. Yeah. Anybody can we'll call put them or in text. the show notes. Yeah. Anybody yeah. can call or text at any point in time. Yeah. We want to remind you that this is part one of this series of this podcast series, Wellness in the Law. We will invite a Charleston alum also a practicing attorney, Beth Paget, who we spoke of from Lawyers Helping Lawyers, Professor Bill Jansen, who we talked about, and a current law student to the conversation in part two of this series to share their different perspectives on wellness in the law. Thanks to both of you guys. I want to give you one additional opportunity. Was there anything we didn't cover that we need to cover now? Because in part two, you take the main mics and mm-hmm. you do the interview. We're doing the interview. I'm out. <laughs> I, th- I think we laid out everything pretty okay. good. Yeah. Um, what do you think, John? Is- you know, I, I I think we covered uh, a lot of it too. But you know, I, I think I would just really echo um, you know what what Gabe had shared at the beginning in describing you know what it felt like when you know, you don't have a solution in front of you. Um, you know, for, for a long time, you know, for a long time I, I thought I had it under control, you know, and I thought that I had the grades and the relationships and, and, and everything I needed to be successful. But when I, you know, separated myself from, you know, from drinking, it was, it was actually my buddy Dan who was doing uh, the 75 hard. So it's like two gallons of water a day, two workouts a day. One of them's got to be outside. You're supposed to read 15 minutes of a non-academic book. You know, it's this challenge, right? And, and no alcohol for 75 days. Yeah. And I, I remember I bet him $100 and said, I, you know, I bet you I'll check more boxes than you. And at the end of it, I think I had drank something like 62 out of those 75 days, you know, and he had drank zero. And it was like <laughs> um, many signs that was there that I, I didn't look at. It's never too late and it's never too early to even just experiment with mm. sobriety and even just experiment with a new way of life. I'm just super, super grateful to have had the support of Gabe Professor Jansen, of you, this entire school, it's absolutely remarkable how much the professors at this school care about Mm -hmm. the students and absolutely remarkable how much the students care about one another. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, I couldn't imagine a better place to spend three years getting an education than right here in Charleston. Yeah, dude. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I am, I am also filled with gratitude. Just, just so we know, I don't want to take up another hour of the podcast. <laughs> how grateful I am, but, uh, but I am too, man. Wow. That's, uh, that's great. And I'm sure our, our faculty will love to hear that. Thank you, Gabe. Thank you, John, for uh, this first segment. And uh, part two of the podcast is coming up with a great lineup of guests. You guys, well, I'll hand the mics over to you. And Sounds great. Thank you, John. Thanks, John.